You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Dr. Erica Kemp. Erica is the Director of Clinical Education and Capstone Coordinator for the Occupational Therapy Program at The Ohio State University. She has served as the Academic Fieldwork Coordinator at Ohio State, as well as at an OTA program for a total of nine years experience in clinical education with prior clinical experience in schools, pediatric outpatient, and acute care. Her research examines the benefits of the capstone experience. Erica, we're excited to have an expert educator and an evidence-based practice and knowledge translation champion on the show today and would love to discuss how evidence-based practice and knowledge translation are integrated into the curriculum at OSU. Um, So thank you for being on the show. You're welcome, and thank you for adding the Ohio State University. It is a thing. <laughs> of course, of course. I get a lot of inspiration from Sunday Night Football, and ah, that's how everybody says. That's right. The university, right? <laughs> um, but not only do you produce great athletes at The Ohio State, um, I think you produce some excellent occupational therapy practitioners as well. We like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Erica, you also were the lead author on a paper titled Advancing the Entry-Level Practitioner, a Curricular Model of the Professional Occupational Therapy Doctoral Degree. And that was published in the Journal of Occupational Therapy Education, uh, which I would love to touch on in our interview today as well. Um, But to start off, can you provide us some context about evidence-based practice and knowledge translation? Sure. I think that um, when I first came into academia, I didn't really know fully what they were and how they were different or related. And I will say that coming into academia made me a different practitioner and vice versa. Being a practitioner made me a very different educator, I think. Um, So I guess I conceptualize evidence-based practices, treatment and, and intervention techniques and assessments as well that have been shown to work through research and scholarly studies. So using, say, CIMT in my practice, because CIMT has been shown to be effective through research. The the cool thing, I think, about it is that the research may be outside of the body of occupational therapy, too. Often when I talk to practitioners, they're like, well, there's no evidence. It's like, well, there is. It's just you have to sometimes look for it. Um, So, for example, does the implementation of sternal precautions during activity post-open heart actually have beneficial outcomes like protecting the wound or do they impede recovery of activity? Um, And so there might be research about sternal precautions out there in the literature that it's, it's applicable to occupational therapy, but is not saying did occupational therapy, you know, progress open heart surgery patients post recovery. Um, You know, and then like a pediatric example might be looking at educational literature to determine the best way to work within an inclusive or push-in classroom to address the participation of kids in their classroom occupations. And and again, that may not be, you know, we have more robust literature probably in pediatrics. um, But again, looking at educational literature and co-teaching and collaboration, um, which again might fall outside of OT. And then I think that that kind of leads into this idea of knowledge translation, right? And so it's thinking about how to move those practices that have found to be effective into your own practice setting. So what is the same and different in that study, particularly if it is outside of OT, 
what's the same between that in, in your clinic or your setting? So, you know, what are those active ingredients that were found to be effective? And then knowledge translation, this idea of how do you maintain the integrity of those ingredients in your own practice? What are the barriers, potential strategies to like overcome those or get around them? You know, so some of this can be done on an individual basis, just with the knowledge you have of your setting and the population you're looking at. And other times it, it, you may need in administrators and larger groups of health professionals involved to, to really take a look at that translation or that transfer of knowledge into our everyday service delivery. I love that metaphor. And uh, thank you for touching on evidence-based practice and knowledge translation. Um, I think I would agree. I think in occupational therapy, um, I know me as a, a student and a, a new practitioner, and a lot of times my first instinct is to look for just evidence that was produced by OTs that's, you know, focusing on OT interventions. But that's such a great point that we need to, you know, look for research from other methods and, and incorporate it into our practice to, to really be as effective as possible. Um, how, how would you say EBP and knowledge translation are integrated into the curriculum or, or program at The Ohio State University? So I think the cool thing about our program is that they're learning this really from the start. Um, we do have two specific courses on evidence-based practice, and we have another course on research methods, of course. Um, but this idea of, of knowledge transfer, we, we implement that into all of our lab experiences, any treatment plans people um, turn in. But then the really the, the best thing, in my opinion, is that we put this right into um, our capstone. So our capstone is really about exactly this, taking the evidence that's out there and figuring out how does this match to um, a capstone state. And, and I think that the one thing I also want to throw in is this idea that at, that looking at a body of literature versus just one article is really important in this whole concept. I think that we often see Sometimes we'll see practitioners, what we call cherry picking the literature, where people are maybe just using one article to guide what they choose to do, rather than considering that whole body of literature and thinking about maybe what's common across the studies that was shown to be effective, and then considering how to implement those active ingredients into practice. And so our capstone process takes students and mentors, the site mentors out in practice through that whole process. And so um, our capstone really is about implementing best practices into actual service delivery, whether that's in a traditional medical setting or in a novel community setting. I think it, it can be accomplished really anywhere. That sounds like such a, an awesome capstone experience for students and mentors alike. Um, I don't know, it, right now might be a good time. Is there an example of a, of a capstone um, that you could share that really illustrates how um, EBP and knowledge translation are, are shared or integrated there? Sure. Um, so we, we do have, we do these in, like I said, traditional medical as well as community settings. Um, so we've had within our traditional medical setting right here at um, Ohio State, we had a student that was really interested in disorders of consciousness and how to, um, what was the best intervention for those, you know, really, really early stage brain injuries. And so she did a comprehensive literature search on what is the best treatment for uh, patients with disorders of consciousness. And then she partnered with our rehab hospital here and looked at what were they currently doing. 
and ended up that there were some gaps, right, between what the research was showing was effective and and what the facility was currently doing. And so throughout her capstone, she uh, used implementation science, essentially, to evaluate what were the barriers to implementing this evidence. And throughout her capstone, then, created some of those strategies to help eliminate the barriers. And, and as a result, she ended up um, sort of overhauling their practice um, guidelines for disorders of consciousness. And she was able to work interprofessionally on this. So it was not just OT, but she was also working with the PMNR doc and PT and rehab psychology and nursing um, and looking at this really from a, a big perspective. So the really cool thing about that is it also gave her this opportunity to see interprofessional collaborative care and looking at how evidence can inform really the whole episode of care, you know, where how OT fits into this, this larger, um, you know, health system. We've also had students do this completely in a non-traditional setting, you know, quote, unquote, I hate the word non-traditional. Um, I, I like like novel or community setting or something <laughs> because I think it, you know, it, it tends to make people think that, oh, we're not really there, but, but we are more and more, I think as our profession has expanded, we are, we are more and more out in the community. Um, so for example, uh, with our, our local zoo, we had a student go out and she was specifically interested in um, inclusion of, of children and their families with disabilities and helping them to be able to access community leisure. So she really looked at, um, you know, what are the strategies that facilitate participation of children in community leisure activities? And so um, that literature review then was she took that information, what are the active ingredients, and went out to the community partner at the zoo and looked at, well, what are they currently doing to enable um, families and, and children to be able to come and enjoy the zoo? And so she, again, did this systematic um you know, process of looking at what are those barriers, what are some of the strategies that might help them um, eliminate some of those barriers, um, and then was able to set that up for sustainability with um, with the zoo and, and kind of leave that for for future employees and then, you know, potentially students again. So that's two different examples, I think, of, of how this can happen um, really in, in any type of setting and how really the site mentor also benefits from the student's ability to pull this evidence forward to grade and understand what that literature is saying. And then the site mentor really contributes in their expertise in that area in, for the zoo example, um, education of a wide variety of individuals that walk through their door, right? And how do, how do we make sure that it is accessible? Those sound like an amazing capstone experiences. So th thank you for sharing those, those examples. And it sounds like you're um, I mean, at Ohio State, evidence is really um, emphasized in a wonderful way that empowers students and empowers these partnerships that you have with mentors and, and different capstone sites. I'd love to, to dive into your paper a little bit right now. Sure. Um, your paper does acknowledge that there are mixed opinions and perspectives about entry-level doctor doctorate programs. Um, historically, occupational therapy has shifted entry-level practice requirements from a bachelor's to a master's degree, and in recent years um, has discussed transitioning a step further to requiring a doctorate degree. What, what would you say are the benefits of an entry-level doctorate degree, and what's kind of your opinion about OT continuing to offer both entry-level master's and entry-level doctorate degrees? 
Yeah, I think that my personal opinion has changed on this a lot. I am a bachelor's degree OT. Um, so I graduated back in 2000, right when they were starting to move to an entry-level master's. Um, so I've, I've seen, you know, the shift. I've also seen the shift in the healthcare system. And I think about like what, what I did as an entry-level practitioner compared to what, what we're doing now. Um, and I think that there is, there is a change in that. I personally do think that there's a benefit to both degrees, master's and doctorate. You know, for some people, an extra year of school is really not something they can look forward to. And the idea of an independent doctoral level project might be really daunting for some. You know, for others, cost is definitely an issue. And another disadvantage I've heard to a doctorate that I've heard graduates speak about is just that sheer burnout they feel by the time they hit level twos, particularly if they're traditional students and have not really had, you know, some brain breaks time off. You know, OTD programs are pretty intense with high credit loads. Graduate school in general is a mix of a bunch of different types of learning from strict memorization to application and then, you know, up to in doctorate programs, this independent creation of a scholarly project. And again, not everybody wants to do all of that. You know, like I said, these things weren't available to me when I was in school. And so, again, I look at also how healthcare and business worlds have collided. And I see that the OTD seems to be giving students the opportunity to have time to explore concepts learned in other lines of study, like business courses or social service courses and, and a better understanding of research. And I think for, you know, when we're thinking about making clinicians, it's not really about conducting the research, though we desperately need those people too. It's, it's about applying the research, collecting the outcomes, and then really being able to talk the talk of the administrators and physicians that are out there in order to demonstrate our value and our effect on client outcomes. We have to learn to talk quality or, or we will be shut out. Um, and I think, you know, I was in a, at a keynote speak, speech this last couple weekends ago um, talking to occupational therapy practitioners, and this uh, physician um, was talking about how he looked us up and he was like, you guys are so positioned to do all of these things that this is, you're, you're lined up. He's like, but I don't see the outcomes. And that just was so heartbreaking that um, thinking, boy, we're not, we're not talking the right language. And so I think that's where the doctorate um, degree can come in handy is helping us figure out, giving, giving graduates, um, giving students the time to explore some of these other concepts, at least have been exposed to them and show them the path towards some of these other opportunities while they're students, rather than making that have to happen while you're an employee with a full-time job and a full caseload and all of the other demands that happen while you are out there working. Um, I think that the doctorate gives us the opportunity to, to lay the groundwork um, to get us out of one-to-one -one clinical care and and make us a little bit more um, relevant, I guess, to to speaking about outcomes and quality. Thank you so much. I, I think that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, it was it was very eloquent and very well said, and uh, definitely definitely makes a lot of sense to me as well. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, 
improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Um, can we talk now more about the specifics of the Ohio State's um, entry-level OTD program? Uh, could you give us maybe an overview of the timeline or progression of that entry-level um, OTD? Yeah, so um, our program is three years continuous, which is why I mentioned the uh, the burnout situation. There are, of course, some gaps between semesters, but um, so our curriculum is sort of developmental. We start with um, some foundational entry-level courses in, in theory. Um, concepts build on each other in the first five semesters when they're pretty much all didactic and lab, lecture lab types of things with some level one fieldwork um, sprinkled in. And then they go out on their uh, two semesters of level two fieldwork. And then the thing I really like about our curriculum is that they come back to campus for an entire semester after those two um, level two fieldwork experiences. And they've really kind of gone through this transition of, of student to clinician, right? That, that's really an amazing experience that happens on fieldwork. Um, and, and they come back more our equals. Um, and they get to then learn and focus on concepts outside of this one-to-one -one clinical practice model. And so they have coursework in consultation and management, um, as well as their capstone proposal. And then they also take an advanced topics course. And that advanced topics course is like sitting around in the cafeteria with your best OT friends, talking about the really tough patient that you have, um, which you know is really fun, actually. And so that, I think that's the thing that I, I love best about the way that ours was um, conceptualized is they come back for this third year. It's really their doctoral year. It's very self-directed. It's a very different model of teaching and really respecting the fact that they um, have become clinicians in that time. That, that does sound like a very, very fun course. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what would you say are the, the overarching goals of the entry-level doctorate degree there? So we have three curricular threads, three goals, really. The first one is this idea of excellence in clinical practice. We want to make really excellent general practitioners that can do, as ACOAT standards say, walk in and treat um, a variety of clients at entry-level competency. Our second goal is to create uh, practitioners that are effective knowledge translators. How do they take that research into practice with them? And then our last goal is really focused around this idea of professional development um, and leadership. I love how knowledge translation is one of the goals of, of your program. Um, yeah. And I want to follow up on, on each of these goals. In, in what ways would you say are, are students' clinical skills enhanced by the curriculum at OSU? Yeah. So... You know, we are luckily in the middle of a giant academic medical center um, where we do have um, some resources at our fingertips. So one of the things that we've done just internally within our program is really increase the use of labs um, and a lot of you know, turning things into active learning, of course, which I think most programs are doing. Um, the other thing we've really done is add in some standardized patients. Um, so we have actors that come and there's an entire simulation space that all of the health sciences colleges at Ohio State can make use of. Um, so we've incorporated standardized patients into pretty much every semester 
um, which has been really helpful. And then we also have this sort of um, developmental piece of experiences that happen. So they start out with some faculty led experiences in the community, just seeing the populations that they might work with. Um, and then that turns into um, eventually to some service learning opportunities and level one fieldwork with clinicians um, on up to level two and then into capstone. So I think we see this developmental um, thread within our curriculum, starting with hands-on in the lab, um, out to very, you know, very supervised, all the way up to independently driven um, experiences within clinical practice. Awesome. Thank you. I know those standardized patient experience can can be nerve wracking as a yeah. student, but they're so valuable and such great learning opportunities. They are. It, it is it is very because it feels so very artificial sometimes, but um, it is a better place to make those mistakes, a nice, safe environment um, to have that get the nerves out, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to thank you for providing this paper and, and doing this interview, really sharing kind of a blueprint for how, well, of how your curriculum and the program at OSU is, is so successful in, in helping students achieve their ultimate potential and, and become practitioners who are practicing at the top of their license. Um, how, how would you say uh, the necessary research analysis skills needed to identify effective interventions are developed during the program? So first of all, thank you. And we, I think at Ohio State, we've been from the beginning very open about wanting to share what we're doing um, because, you know, number one, why recreate the wheel? If we found something that works, let's <laughs> let's keep, let's make, let's make it available to everybody. Um, and I also think that, you know, our, our late program director, Jane K. Smith, was very passionate about the importance of the OTD. And I, while she's not around anymore, I think that that um, has sort of rubbed off on, on those of us that are still faculty members here. So research analysis um, is definitely, again, integrated right into our program. They start off with, um, in their second semester, a research methods course, as well as um, an evidence-based practice course. And that evidence-based practice course, they take with physical therapist students. And so uh, we kind of begin that interprofessional collaborative care approach um, with that course right there. And then we do have additional interprofessional things, which is a whole nother day. Um, <laughs> and then so, and then that gets those evidence-based practice skills um, get implemented right or continued into our capstone courses. So they have a community health planning course, and that really is the beginning of thinking about what their capstone might look like. And so that's where we start to think about um, what programs might be needed out there, population health, um, you know how do we start to think about implementing evidence into other settings um, and that sort of thing? And then um, and then the capstone ultimately is this, this individualized scholarly product, project, sorry, that um, it, it's based in research. It's based in this idea of transferring evidence into practice and making sure it works, right? I, I think one of the things that we're all really passionate about, at least I am, um, is this idea that there's a huge gap. There's a huge gap between research, research and practice, and it doesn't need to be that big. Now, we all know that research doesn't work as is in every practice setting, that there are things that need to be changed. So if we can get this skill set to more practitioners, um, as, as graduates and then also as site mentors, teach them this process as site mentors, um, we can get these skills um, out into practice a little bit quicker, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, 
I too, Erica, am passionate about narrowing the research to practice gap. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, a lot of the, the basis for this podcast um, and, and for a lot of the efforts of, of AOTA um, to narrow that gap, which, you know, I, everybody's heard it. It takes 17 years to translate research into practice. And there's a lot of, of other factors there as well. But how would you say the efforts of the Ohio State University's um, entry-level OTD assist in narrowing that research to practice gap? Well, I mean, the obvious one is the capstone. Now, our level two fieldwork, I I don't want to ignore that, also has an evidence-based practice assignment where they, again, are looking at a a clinical problem um, while they're on their fieldwork working with their their fieldwork educator to identify that. And then they pull forward at least three articles that would help um, identify the best intervention or assessment um, for that clinical practice. So I, I think that it, you know, it starts... Back in our in our coursework, where when they turn in an intervention plan, they're often having to attach an article to why they chose that intervention, and then we continue that in level two fieldwork, where they're looking at an actual clinical patient potentially, and um, finding some ideas in the research as to that would support intervention that would need to happen for that, and then continuing that into the capstone, where they are. Um, going even more in depth beyond just three articles into what does that body of literature say? And then the capstone also gives them the time, right, to really not just say here are some best interventions, but then to also help the site and site mentor overcome some of those barriers. So I think that our curriculum um, certainly lends itself to, to, to shortening that gap. But honestly, I think the other thing where that gap really exists is is academicians like myself being able to talk to clinical practitioners. And I think that it's, you know, we often lose touch with graduates, right? You graduate, you go, you're doing your thing, you're working and you're like, oh, I don't need to stay in touch with my school. <laughs> when, <laughs> when the reality is if we can maintain that um, communication a little bit more, and one way to do that is through um, sending students to sites and, and maintaining that conversation with educators and site mentors alike. Um, you know, it's 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 knowing that each part, each entity is playing a role in this idea of of closing this gap this um, that we see and and just continuing to to work together. I think in that. Um, I, I love that emphasis on on collaboration um, and continued collaboration from students and, and practitioners and, and the university. That's um, an, an awesome perspective to have. Um, are there any other experiences or courses you'd like to, to mention or touch on that help prepare students to apply and adapt evidence-based practice? Yeah, I think we covered a lot um, in this last couple minutes. I, I don't know that I really do. <laughs> yeah, no, sounds good. This is a, you're really painting a picture of, of what the entry level OTD um, experience is like and, and, and how it can helps, how it can help to narrow that, that research to practice gap. Um, I have a question for you after seeing so many doctoral capstone experiences over the years, what would you say contributes to making a capstone as successful as it can be? So this one I had to really think about a little bit um, because, so this is my fourth year doing this. And I, I think that number one, the student has to be interested in the topic, right? <laughs> that yeah. obviously has to be. And I think one of the hard things is getting 
both students and site mentors to see past the um, a third field work for this. I think that, that that's one of the things that I'm really trying to help barrier that I'm really trying to help break down. So, so you have to ideally know what the student's interested in and then pair them, not or facilitate them finding. I don't want to use the word pair because that implies that I just match them up, which isn't, isn't correct. Um, but helping them find a site mentor that has expertise in their area of interest. And I think that that kind of sounds daunting. And a, a lot of times students come to me and they're like, well, I just want inpatient rehab. I don't care what I do and I don't care who I'm with. And I'm like, no, it really needs to be um, with the person more than the site. And I think that that's one way that this really does differ from a level two fieldwork experience. I think there's a couple other things that make it really successful. So one student interest being paired up with a site mentor that has some some clinical time in that that area. And I think um, you know, the word clinical expertise sometimes scares some um, practitioners and it's like, well, you treat feeding patients, right? You, you know what feeding is. Um, maybe, maybe you don't have a credential in that, but it's certainly something that you are confident in doing, right? So I think that's, that's one of those things too. But then back to the initial question. <laughs> um, the other things I think that make doctoral capstone experiences successful is an understanding of the mentoring process between students, faculty advisor, and site mentor, and knowing that each one of those entities brings a different expertise to the game to make it successful. So, you know, the site mentor has access to this clinical population and this um, experience working with this population. The faculty advisor has experience in the um, the process of our capstone, the knowledge transfer, um, the critical appraisal, the grading of the literature, all of that. And the student really brings this, this passion for the topic and the de desire and want to learn. And then I think the last thing that really helps capstones go well is to have a really good understanding of, of self-directed learning that that this project is everyone is so different so creative I, I get to the end every year and I listen to what our students have done and it's it's phenomenal what they have learned what they have created all of their own volition so while we have these sort of guardrails to what this capstone process is ultimately the student is choosing what they want to learn about and so I think the mentor understanding that their role in self-directed learning is really facilitating the student's opportunities, right? So if the student, again, really wants to learn about feeding, the site mentor can help facilitate them being able to go see modified barium swallows or talk with the psychologist, shadow the psychologist. Um, maybe that in, does involve a little bit of a caseload, but not necessarily. Um, and so I think it's, it's that understanding of what are the objectives of the capstone, the mentoring process of the whole thing, and then really the student having the drive to learn about this, this topic a little bit more than they have up until that point in their education. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I can hear how passionate you are about being a capstone coordinator. And it I am. It's sad, isn't it? I just love it so much. <laughs> it, it's a wonderful. It's wonderful. I think an, a great capstone experience can really just have such a deep impact on, on someone's, you know, practice and, and approach to OT, but also just on their whole entire life. Um, so I, I think that's really what 
what we need is is passionate capstone coordinators like you. <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of us out there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, in in what ways would you say that organizations and and practitioners benefit from from being a mentor and accepting doctoral capstone students? You know, honestly, I found that once mentors have had one capstone student, they want more. Um, the, it, it really, it's an opportunity for the site to learn about what's effective in the literature. Um, the, the mentoring relationship for the, for the mentor is so rewarding because they just see this student blossom um, and, and become a, a practitioner. And I, and I think that the sites also really benefit from gaining strategies in in eliminating barriers. So it might be a deliverable like um, new patient education materials or new staff competencies um, created, new clinical guidelines created. And I think that it also introduces the organization to the concept that OT practitioners do not have to live in one-to-one clinical practice. I think it helps organizations see us as um, someone at the table, someone that can, um, a profession that contributes to quality outcomes, someone that could step into a leadership role, a case manager role, um, something, you know, some other creation of a, of a role that's not necessarily just one-to-one um, clinical practice. So I think that the capstone is very beneficial for the student, the site mentor, the site, and, and the profession as a whole. I love that. It sounds like there's so many benefits. Um, how, how could clinicians and, and academic programs make that connection and, and really partner to, you know, bridge the gap between practice, education, and research through through capstones? So we actually are going to have a pre-conference at AOTA this year. There's um, a group of capstone coordinators that I work with. They're amazing. We call ourselves the odd ha- ad hoc capstone Innovations and Outcomes Committee. Um, That's a mouthful of a name, Erica. (laughs) And I feel like our name has changed over the years. Um, And so we have um, just a group of of capstone coordinators that are interested in really putting the word out about the benefits of the capstone and kind of helping put up those guardrails for people that are new. Um, But we're going to have a pre-conference for anyone who's interested as a clinician in learning more about the capstone help create capstone experiences, ideas for, um, and then offer you the opportunity to obviously network with the capstone coordinators that are there. But if you are listening to this and you are like, boy, I really want to do a capstone, I encourage you just to reach out to your local academic partner. Um, I've also seen um, both site mentors and students post things um, in community. So I think it's about um, trying to make those connections, those really build those relationships um, so that you can come up with something equally amazing for your own practice and site. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, if, if someone's interested in attending this pre-conference, um, is there more information on it? Is there a date set? What, what would their next steps kind of be? Yeah. So the um, it, it'll come out with AOTA conference when all of that registration comes out. And so you can register for the pre-conferences separate from the actual conference. It's in San Antonio this year. We are hoping that it will be live, you know, COVID. Um, <laughs> we're, we're really a fun group. And so I think that, um, yeah, if you're interested, check that out. And if not, they can always email me as well. 
Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and what tips would you give Erica to students to help them choose, prepare for, and complete their capstone? You know, sometimes it's really overwhelming to a student to even have to narrow down what they want to learn because so many times they come into OT with all these great ideas. And all I keep saying to them is, you know what? That means you've chosen the right profession. It's okay to not really be sure. And in, and in that case, I think I, if they're not sure what they want to do, I think that I tell them that the idea behind the capstone is that you're learning a process, a process for lifelong learning. So let's say 10 years into practice, you're like, I do not want to deal with children anymore, right? I need something else. You'll know how to develop a plan to learn a new topic, a new area. Say you're like, I want to go do hand therapy now. The capstone process is one way of, of learning how to set those learning goals, how to find the resources that you need to learn those things so that you can switch practice settings. Um, so sometimes I tell students, don't worry about it. It's okay if you don't have that specific interest. Um, just enjoy the process and really file that away. Um, other times um, they're like, well, I really want to be interested in it. I say, okay, go back through all the courses that you've taken and Look at all the guest lectures because so many programs bring in a bunch of guest lecturers. What was that guest lecture about? What is the topic that you that really grabbed your attention that you didn't even realize you were studying, that you lost time, you were in the flow? Um, those are the things that probably would make a really good capstone. Um, another approach to it is to think about where do you want to be three to five years from now? Maybe you want to be in an administrative position or you want to be on the payer side. You want to be a policymaker. Um, you want to be um, teaching somewhere. Um, so thinking about that down the road will also help you um, pick an area of focus that maybe isn't clinical practice. Maybe you are going to look at leadership skills, administration, policy. Um, and so kind of thinking about that down the road. So there's lots of different ways um, to figure out what your capstone is going to be, um, depending on where you're coming from. Absolutely. Thank you. That's awesome recommendations for, for our student listeners. Um, so, so thank you. Um, how, how do you hope educators really use your publication from the Journal of Occupational Therapy Education and, and what you've shared today related to OSU's entry-level OTD? I think for, for programs, I think the challenge is to consider how the capstone can be a scholarly, and I'm going to use the word clinical, project purely to differentiate it from a research dissertation. Now, I understand that clinic might be out in the community, something new, social service, or somewhere other than a medical facility. But I think that I use that because it's a clinical doctorate. So how can this capstone be a scholarly, independent clinical project? And then thinking about linking that to your own program's curricular threads. So we've talked through today about how you know, our capstone really reflects each of the three curricular threads that Ohio State has, um, but maybe your program has completely different um, focus. Um, so I think it's about matching that back to your own. And then I think it's about pushing practitioners, your site mentors and your graduates to, to quote unquote, practice at the top of their license, right? We, I think you mentioned that earlier. I think that I see so many burnt out, overburdened practitioners out there. And because let's face it, one-to-one -one clinical care is exhausting and can be a recipe for disaster, especially maybe in your 20th year. And, and I think COVID has totally exemplified that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that this capstone model um, 
helps us model ourselves after something more like nursing. So if you think about nurses, they may work the floors for like three to five years, and then they move into a different position. I mean, how many positions do you see in community and in inpatient type of settings that say nurse, you know, nurse registration, but why not OT? You know, why can't we be the ones to move into case management, quality improvement, or whatever it may be? Um, but there's still the option for those warriors that are still in the ICU for like their whole career, right? So I, I think just it's a it's a nice thing to think about how can how can the capstone then model changing that practice and and how what would what might that look like in your own um, academic program? I love that a, a a new perspective, a new way to look at the capstone, um, and really having lasting a lasting impact uh, with with practitioners down the road after they graduate and um, are are well into their careers. Yeah. Um, Another thing I tell people too is like. If you get through your capstone and you're like, I hate this, that's a win in my opinion. Like, <laughs> like you know, like what what didn't you like about it? Where it was it was it the site? Was it the topic? Was it what you were doing? I mean, or did you just love it? I think that 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 really can help guide your career in so many ways too. And that's a a great point. I think when I was a student, which really wasn't that long ago, I loved every aspect of OT and every practice area that we learned about in our curriculum. I was like, oh yeah, like I could see myself potentially doing this. Um, and it, so I had a difficult time really narrowing down where I wanted to apply for jobs, like what type of setting I wanted to be in as, you know, a, a, a new professional. Um, and that's a great point. I think the capstone can really help people kind of narrow that down and, and see where they want to be practicing in their career. Erica, what resources would you recommend to listeners who want to learn more about curriculum development and how to include EBP and knowledge translation in occupational therapy academic education? Yeah. Well, um, I know that there is a new curriculum blueprint model document. I'm not sure the exact words on what it is coming out um, by a task force um, that will have some, it's much more user-friendly than the last version was. Um, but I think backward design is a really great uh, way to think about curriculum design. And then as far as EVP and, and knowledge translation, I know AOTA has a knowledge transfer toolkit um, up on their website. I think also any article on implementation science is um, really a useful way to think about a capstone. Um, and then I also, there's another group out there, Learning Health Systems Rehabilitation Research Network, or LEARN, um, is really looking at improving rehab and quality across the board. And so I think that's another potential um, resource. And then the capstone coordinators are putting out a lot of um, research. So keep your eyes on JOAT. I think there'll be a lot more um, articles forthcoming on, on what seems to be working and what's not in the capstone world in particular. Absolutely. Thank you. And that, that knowledge translation toolkit, another Ohio State University product. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> we, hey, we love OSU. Um, and I just had a follow up. What is a backward design when yeah. talking about curriculum? Yeah. yeah. So backward design is the idea of thinking about, you know, what is the outcome that you want for the student or the program first? And then working backwards, what are the experiences and things that they need to learn to get to those outcomes. So, and, and, and what are then the assessment measures of the things you want them to learn? So it's this idea of linking everything um, from the finish, where do you want them to be, rather than thinking about what do I wanna teach them? 
it's what do I want them to be able to do. Therefore, what do I need to teach them to get there type of thing? I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, Erica, this has been a, a wonderful interview. Thank you so much again for your time, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. Um, we've made it now to the final question, our final mm-hmm. segment, the golden nugget question is okay. what we like to call it. Um, if there was one piece of advice or recommendation that you can make to, um, to OTs, what would you say? I think just be open to possibilities um, in your career, in your life. Um, I never imagined that I would be working in academia, much less at Ohio State, much less being like on a podcast for AOTA. You know, I'm just going to go work. And um, I think you just just stay open and listen to what what's out there. Um, and, and particularly for the capstone, I know that there are some people that aren't so sure about the OTD. And I think just take a step back and think about what possibilities that could um, potentially open up for you and, and potential new graduates. I love that. It's an excellent nugget and a wonderful way to end the show. Mm-hmm. Stay open to the experiences that, that may come your way. Um, yeah. And also stay prepared so that when those opportunities do come, you, you can take them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I love it. Thank you again so much, Erica. It's been a a real pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.